Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. This is God's Word. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he, that is Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'd like to set the context a bit. That's all. I always find that helpful. And this will be simply a reminder to those of you that have been with us, but we're in the Gospel of Mark, and it was two weeks ago now that. Uh, we left off this story that we pick up today. And before that, you may remember that we are in that section of the public life and ministry of Jesus as he nears the end of his life and he has come to Jerusalem at Passover uh, with all kinds of others, (laughs) uh, crowds everywhere. That's That's the scene. And as we come to this, what we find today is an ongoing from last times we were here, encounter with religious officials. Actually, there are multiple episodes of Jesus encountering religious officials. And if you've read the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, you, you see these recurring episodes. There, were, there are eight listed in Matthew. Eight episodes. There are six in Luke. And Mark itself, if you can think back far enough, when we started the series in Mark, in chapters 2 and 3, there were five back-to-back encounters with religious officials. It is a theme of the public life and ministry of Jesus, the three years. And it's about one year into his public ministry where this begins. And it reaches a crescendo right here in this final week of his life. Uh, The one before us today is of some note. It's one of the few encounters that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all chose to include this in their narrative, which is a bit of a clue to us that there's something going on here of note that we should attend to. Matthew tells this story in Matthew 21. Luke covers it in Luke 20. And we come to this text like we do any text there should be a question that we all ask of it. And that is, why is this here? Why this story? Why this episode? Why this truth right here? And the text actually answers that question for you. And if you followed the reading that we just did together, you will have heard the word four times, authority. That's what this passage is about. 
And so Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is one who comes with authority because he is authority. That's what we see in this passage. What we see, particularly, is that the one with authority to turn tables upside down in the temple responds to questions with questions, comes with power to turn the life of the world right side up. That's who's before us today. That's what happens when we come face to face with the authority of Jesus. Our lives are turned right side up. And I want to invite you to hang on to that as we walk through this episode together. True authority, you see, challenges our assumptions. True authority exposes our folly. And true authority requires our response. That's our roadmap as we walk through this together. I've yet to meet the person, maybe you can introduce them to me later someday, the person that says, sure, I'd love somebody to interfere with my life. Uh, that, that person, male, female, is elusive. I, frankly, I'm not sure that person exists. Uh, long before it was a bumper sticker, the human heart had learned to question authority. Uh, there's an old saying that I found surfing the internet. Question authority, but never your mother. Uh, that was probably written by a mother, that's my guess. <laughs> but, the, but someone who's watched the little wheels begin to turn in the, in the head and the mind of a two-year-old, that becomes a three-year-old, a four and a five. And what, what the reality is, is when those wheels begin to turn, am I going to do what I'm expected to do, what I'm being told? Am I, am I going to do that? When those wheels start, they don't stop. <laughs> They just don't stop. Uh, it's, it's embedded in, in, a, in a fallen human nature to question authority, to, to raise questions. What am I going to do with what I'm being told? Because frankly, I don't like being told. And it's not just the three-year-old. It's the 73-year-old and everything in between and beyond. It didn't start there. But one man, you may recognize this name if you're old enough. If you're a baby boomer, you probably would recognize the name Timothy Leary. A noted Harvard professor, researcher, psychology was his field, who coined the phrase that became a battle cry for a generation, think for yourself and question authority. But it's not just baby boomers, is it? It's the culture in which we live. Think for yourself. In fact, you couldn't do better than describing the current world in which we live at every age. And that is what has been called expressive individualism. We've talked about that before. That what matters most is that I learn to express myself regardless of what other people say I should or shouldn't think or do or be, even as I identify myself. We now have the obligation from our culture to even identify who we are gender-wise. It was Timothy Leary who coined the phrase that became a battle cry for a, for a generation. And following 
a Watergate scandal, which many of you have read about, others remember, that ideology, think for yourself and question authority, became the most accepted ideology around, and it still is this day. Jesus' authority may be as much as any questioned by the world in which we live and maybe by even our own hearts and lives. It's not only our culture, but our own wills, our own autonomy, our own self-made ways that begin to buck up or to draw back and to chart our own course when someone comes and says, this is the way, walk in it. True authority challenges our assumptions. That's where I wanted to start today. We see that in this text. It's kind of underneath the text, but I want you to consider this with me. It, it starts, the, the challenge to our assumptions starts with the realization that our assumptions are powerful. That's the first notion. Our assumptions, when they get mixed with facts, as we see those facts, yield or, or a blend of a cocktail that prompts us to operate with more confidence than is often warranted. We think the ice will hold us, and so we walk out on the frozen lake. <laughs> that one has some dire consequences at times, assuming that the ice there is like the ice here. That is a, that is a way that we operate with great peril. Those assumptions are powerful like that. Uh, Paul Tripp says human beings do not live life based on the facts of ex their experience, but on the interpretation of those facts. We never respond objectively to the situations in our life. We respond based on the lens that we see those situations through. He's on to something helpful. It's not the bare facts. It's our interpretation of what we think are the facts that lead us forward, and, and they shape the way we live. We're, we've got lenses that are sometimes smudged with our assumptions. Uh, so we need to recognize that assumptions are powerful. We, we're going to see that in this text. We're also going to see that they're not only powerful, they are typically hidden. And that makes them even more precarious. Hidden from our view, the fact is, much of the time, we don't really know what we've assumed. We're not, we don't call it that. It's just operating, driving us forward without a name. But the reality is, it's an assumption that we've made that has not been challenged. And God, in His goodness and mercy to us, will challenge our assumptions at times simply for to bring them front and center instead of behind us so that we recognize, oh, that's not a fact. That's an assumption. And when I blend those together, I, I'm unaware of that. And I'm better off if I recognize the difference between a fact and an assumption. But you add those together, assumptions are not only powerful, and dangerous, they are profoundly stubborn. Assumptions, you see, don't just drift off once identified. Maybe the best example of that is, uh, one, one good example of it anyway, is 
<clears throat> the words that C.S. Lewis used to describe his own life. We, we, we're very familiar with his works around here. We, we talk about the things that he's written that, that are so helpful. But he talks about his own coming to faith in ways that are profoundly eye-opening. First to him and, and maybe today for, for you. Of course, what mattered most of all, he writes, was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to be, seemed to me, a transcendental interferer. A transcendental interferer. It's a picture, if it's, if it's picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depths of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. I'm going to guess you recognize that. C.S. Lewis is representative of many of us that have forged a life and we've carved out parts with barbed wire fence and a guardrail that says no admittance. This is my business and mine only. But then there's this transcendental interferer that we meet here who comes along and says, take that down. This is my business, mine only, were Lewis's words. The religious leaders in this passage had taken a similar position and posture, and they walk into the temple courts, their jurisdiction, right? So to speak. And they came with this posture. This is our business and ours only. This is our place. What is it, Jesus of Nazareth, that makes you think you have the authority to do these things. What were these things? Well, it might have included that cursing of the fig tree. It might have been his daily teaching in the temple. It was, this has culminated. This is two years worth of culmination that began one year into his public ministry and has crescendoed into this moment. Who has given you the authority? You see, Jesus didn't have the right credentials. Frankly, that's one of the things that was so compelling to those who heard him and followed him. It was surprising to them when they would hear him teach and he would say, you teach as one with authority, not like the scribes, not like the talking heads that we are familiar with, not like those who in the temple courts on this day are challenging Jesus. This is our business and ours only. These were religious leaders were topped on, they were perched at the top of an echelon of a movement on, based on erroneous assumptions that all authority was theirs, that the right and wrongs and the way forward and the way to walk in it was clear to them and at their disposal to dispose of and to instruct. They were the ones that called the shots in the temple courts. Jesus who has given you authority? 
Actually, that question comes probably after Jesus has concluded his teaching of the day. I mentioned it was daily teaching. We learned that from the other synoptic accounts, that Jesus came into the temple each morning this week, Holy Week we would call it. On Monday he was there. Now this is Tuesday he is back. And he has concluded his teaching apparently. From the other accounts we read it more clearly. But in Mark he says, as Jesus was walking, presumably after he had finished his teaching with the crowd of people around him, then he begins to walk through the temple courts. Now they come to him. And I would suppose, I would suggest to you that they come to him now. They didn't interrupt his teaching, not out of courtesy, but out of fear. Not so much fear of him. They thought they had figured out how to manipulate and manage the situation. They had come with their questions prepared. Their fear of the crowd. Because as we read here, this crowd has already concluded that John is a prophet. And this man is building on John's momentum and his teaching. And John keeps pointing to this one. So their wait to confront Jesus after his teaching was not out of courtesy but out of fear. And this is where Jesus challenges their assumptions. He challenges it when he, when he answers a question with a question. With a question. He's answering a question with a question as a way to have them think further about what they've just said. What religious leaders have you assumed as you come into this moment? And his question is this, by what authority are, their question to him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave this authority to do them? Jesus answers that with this question. I will ask you one question, answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things, answer me. You know, we're often scheming Squirming, maybe better way to put it, squirming to get out from under an authority that challenges our autonomy. And the religious leader's authority has been challenged here. Their assumptions have been challenged. And they begin to squirm. They begin to squirm with this question. Because true authority not only <clears throat> challenges our assumptions... It exposes our folly. And that's what we see going on in verses 29 to 32. Jesus, you see, knew the difference between a sincere question and a genuine question. And probably you do too. A sincere, sometimes it's hard work to kind of get through. Is this a real question or, or is this a dodge? But Jesus could see right through it. He knew that this was not a sincere question. He understood it to be the trap that they had posed. They really didn't want to know what authority. They wanted to, him to have to say something with which they could charge him. So his question that exposes their folly is simply this. Was the baptism from John from heaven or from man? You know, now as we read that, that seems like it's coming from left field. We're not expecting that at this moment. But Jesus picks up on something and he says, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. 
It's a brilliant question. With that question, you see, they were stuck. And as they sensed their presumptuous upper hand slipping away, they did what every head coach will do when the other team jumps out to a 10-point run, they call timeout. We're losing control with that question. And so they huddle. And we're actually given a little inside scoop, the fly-on-the-wall recording of what happened as they huddled. And they said, well, what are we going to do with this? If, if we acknowledge John's authority, if we say that his message was from heaven, we are then opening ourselves up to the charge of unbelief. Why did we not believe him? They've been trying to contain that message as well, right? It was the head of John the Baptist had been delivered by this point. They were trying to squelch this. If we, if we say that his message was from heaven, we open ourselves up to the charge of unbelief. And we lose. On the other hand, if we, if we say that his message was from man... We're in jeopardy there as well because this crowd, the people that have assembled this week in Jerusalem for Passover, this crowd sees John as a prophet and this man one as well. So we're stuck. If we acknowledge John's message was from heaven, we're charged with unbelief. If we say that his message was from man then we lose this crowd because they've concluded otherwise. And then they did what every religious leader in the world at that point dreaded. <laughs> A moment in time where they had to say and chose to say because they had no answer, we don't know. We probably don't feel the weight of that. But for the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders to say, we don't know, was a hard syllable, set of syllables to swallow. Worship that at one time had rested solely on the prescriptions of divine revelation in the Old Testament had become so enveloped in religious trappings and human innovations that it was no longer valid and they had no answer. You see, they were attempting to show Jesus as the upstart. And with Jesus' brilliant, simple question, he shows them that they have no answer, and it is they who are the upstarts. They are the ones who have come in to a temple, precinct, thinking they understood not knowing what they had assumed, and with a folly that is now exposed. True authority challenges our assumptions. It exposes our folly. It shows me where I have foolishly stepped and wandered. But it does something else, friends. True authority challenges my assumptions. It exposes my folly. And true authority requires a response. 
We see that in verses 30 and 33 where Jesus looks to them and says, Answer me. Answer me. Why wouldn't Jesus answer their question? You know, we do. We want to step into the story and and say, Jesus, you could have responded in a different way. (laughs) You could have come straight forward and say what you will say not long from now. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That's probably what I would have said. And we want to jump in and say, there's more here than, than Jesus is acknowledging. But he leaves them basically hanging, requiring a response of them. And the text gives us a clue as to what he's really doing. It's that surprise question. It's about the baptism of John. And when he says the baptism of John, he's not referring to John's ministry of baptism broadly. There's one baptism of John he's referring to. Do you know what it is? It's when John baptized Jesus. That's what he's referring to. What do you say about the baptism of John? What do you say about John's baptism of me, Jesus says, to the religious onlookers? You may want to turn back later today and reread that section. We covered it a few weeks ago, months ago now. We read about it in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus comes to John, who's baptizing others, and he says, baptize me. And in the other accounts, you you may recall John saying, no, I don't need to baptize you. And Jesus says, oh, yes, you do. Because I'm identifying with the sin of of a fallen world. And you need to baptize me. And do you remember what happened when John baptized Jesus? A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. And as Jesus stands in the temple precinct, surrounded by religious officials, he's pointing them back to a point in time, which was maybe two years ago at this point, not that long ago, where he was baptized, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Between that baptism and this encounter, there was another moment in time where Jesus standing on a mountain with Peter, James, and John. And a cloud forms, and out of that cloud, another voice comes to say, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. That's the one standing in the temple precincts. He could have said, but it wasn't public knowledge, a reference to the transfiguration. That's what that is. But, but John's baptism of Jesus was public. And it was, and it was a part of the narrative. It was part of the story. It was known that John baptized Jesus and that a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. On a mount of transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's who stands before, who exposes our folly after challenging our assumptions and then requiring a response. When he says, answer me twice. It goes with words from Mark chapter 9, two chapters earlier. 
listen to him. Listen to him. Answer me. The one who challenges my assumptions, exposes my folly, and demands and requires a response. That's who's before you today, friends. Who says, answer me. Sinclair Ferguson, recognizing that Jesus is one like C.S. Lewis did, Jesus is one who interferes in our lives. I want you to let that settle, settle for a moment. Jesus, the true authority, is one who interferes in our lives. Frankly, were he not one who interferes in our lives, we wouldn't be here today. It was his gracious intervention that awakens us, that challenges our assumptions, that exposes our folly, that requires a response, and he is the response. And when we see that and we come to him knowing our assumptions, our folly, our foolishness, our, our waywardness, our self-made lives do not work very well after all, do they? We come to him because he is true authority. But more than that, he is true authority wrapped in mercy and love. There's one really wonderful example of this. By the way, it was the realization of his divine authority is what, is what drew his disciples to him to begin with. It's what has drawn you to him. Or maybe he is drawing you to him. It's the recognition of his divine authority. And it is the Spirit of God that opens our eyes to be able to see that and to take hold of it. And when the Spirit does that, there are three things that follow. I want to suggest to you. It's, it's because one person has said, a Christian is someone whom God has subdued. Hold on to that picture for a moment. And I want to try to, try to answer that qu the question, what does a subdued life like that look like? A life subdued by God. What does that look like? It, well, it begins with a new clarity. A, a new clarity. You begin to see things with clearer eyes that you had not seen before. In Mark chapter 1, we read this. Following Jesus' baptism of, of John, 40 days in the wilderness, the calling of the first four disciples, he enters another synagogue, another with religious Worshippers gathered around, and they watched him, and here's how they responded with the clarity. It's a new clarity. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So you've got scribes teaching, and then there's Jesus. And Jesus' teaching is with authority and clarity and power, opposed to those who are repeating religious words and precepts. And the innovations, religious innovations. And he comes as the author of the book. You know that book you're trying to make sense of? You're trying to read a book somewhere along the way. And you got questions about what's going on there. The best way to understand what that book is about is to sit down with the author. Jesus comes as the author. The author of life with authority. Hear it? He comes with authority because he's the author of life. Unlike scribes and Pharisees and, and the teachers of the day, and unlike any of us, 
He comes because he is authority. And if there's any ring of authority in anything we do around here, it's because he is your teacher. He is the one who takes his word and you hear his voice through the proclamation of his word. He comes with authority and he gives you a new clarity. But it also leads, it goes from clarity to humility. Following Luke's account of this story, we read this. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. Not about this event, but later. You've spoken well, for they no longer dared ask him any questions. And I would propose to you that the reason that they dared ask him no more questions might not merely be that they had met their match. It might mean and include that there was a profound and a new sense of humility. At least we can hope so. Clarity and humility, then moving to ongoing consecration. That's what a subdued life, a life subdued by God looks like. It's marked by clarity, humility, and consecration. So what does that look like? Well, I would suggest that there are some good, very good examples sitting near you today of lives that have been rearranged and reordered, men and women and children that are seeking to to walk in His way. So there are pictures among us of that consecration. But I want to hold one more before you. Turn to the back of your bulletin. Just look at the very back. This is where we will most often have a set of questions to help you think about this message later today or some other time. But on the right-hand side, you'll see a picture, an emblem inserted. It's a hand holding forth a heart. This emblem that you see, a heart extended, was John Calvin's personal emblem. It was what he chose to mark his life and to, and to set his ways and to return to. Uh, an, an, a hand extended with a heart by which he utters the words in his life motto, which is inscribed around, in this case, in Latin, Lord, I offer you my heart. Promptly and sincerely. That's a life, friends that has been subdued by God. Lord, I offer you my heart, meaning all that I am. I offer you my life. I return to you what is yours. And I do so promptly and, and sincerely. Um, it was about a week ago in preparing for today that I literally stumbled across that emblem. I had heard it before. I've actually not seen it, so I looked it up. That's how you have it in front of you. And uh, I've got to say that for the last week, uh, those words in that picture have altered my days. Think about an area of your life that you've put up the barbed wire fence and the sign that says no admittance, or at least you treat it that way. What does it then look like to take down barbed wire, to take down a sign, and instead offer an extended hand 
with your heart and your life and the words promptly and sincerely. So what motivates that? What was it that captured John Calvin's heart and mind or might capture yours and mine this day? What is it that, that compels that? Well, clarity, humility. But what, what leads to consecration is to begin to see that the authority that stands in front of us today is an authority that is clothed with love and mercy. It's not brute authority. It is authority that comes to you in love and in mercy. And our friend Kevin DeYoung was very helpful when he, when he says, to those of us who would say, I want his mercy, I want his love, it's not his authority that I'm after. Because we can find ourselves in that picture, right? I want his love. I need his mercy. Authority, I'm not sure. And DeYoung reminds us that if we rob him of his authority, you have none of the other. It's his authority. It's the authority by which he reigns and rules that, that he extends grace and mercy and love. It's not either or, it's both and. And what that means is the authority that comes to us, even when it makes us scratch our heads because we don't understand it. As has been alluded to a little bit earlier, if it's, if it's only something I agree with, I'm not subdued, I'm not, I'm not choosing to submit because I've already agreed with it. He touched on that a little bit. And sometimes God's authority comes to us and it challenges our, our, our understanding and our assumptions. And when we see that that authority is clothed in love and mercy, we're then poised to do just what John Calvin models for us. I give you my heart. I give you myself. Promptly and sincerely. Because the love and the mercy with which he comes is a love that died for all of the rebellion, all of the pride, all of the self-will, all of the self-made ways that I've chosen to take hold of to mark and to characterize my life. That is sin for which, for which Christ died. That is rebellion which sent him to a cross. What compels this kind of consecration? It's what Jesus would do three days later when he would go to a cross and, and pay the penalty for my rebellion, for my self-made ways, for my questioning all of his authority. He died for that. And three days later, rose. It's as the resurrected Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That's what's going on here. We get a picture of a king, aren't we? With authority. But it's the resurrected Christ, which is why a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, could say, your dominion is an everlasting dominion. What he comes, as he comes to us, he comes clothed with, with love and mercy, the authority that we need, that we long for, that we were made for, he comes with. But he comes graciously and tenderly. And he is patient with us. 
as we learn to trust his authority. But make no mistake, it does demand a response. We read this text and we wonder, why was Jesus so coy? The text, though, reads us and asks, why are we so much like these religious officials? Why are we so slow to recognize that the true authority comes with grace and mercy, giving his life that we would have life, showing us the way to walk because of the one who walked before us. You see, everything that God's authority requires, Jesus did. And because he did it, that record becomes yours by faith. A transfer, his righteousness and your sin exchanged. My rebellion, his righteousness exchanged. This is the way. Walk in it. You know, the, ser- the title of our sermon series has been Follow Me. It will continue to be until we get to the end of Mark. Follow me. And we do. Because he is an authority. Wrapped in love and mercy. With your name on it. It's for you. Father, meet us at this place this day we pray that you would open our eyes to see the goodness and the beauty of the one who is true authority wrapped in mercy and love who answers questions with a question who exposes our folly challenges our assumptions requiring a response from us and we come we come to the one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion whose kingdom endures from generation to generation we come through Christ our Lord in whose name we pray Amen